Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. I am one of the hosts, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield material, but now you're actually tuned into our OITE review, and we are finishing up trauma. We have covered upper extremity, pelvis, some of hip, some subchoke, and uh, we're kind of marching down the leg. Uh, so this is our OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, where we try to go over high yield topics. And uh, if this is your first time listening, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you're a returning listener, welcome back yet again. We hope that you told a friend or left us a review from our last episode. And without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, more specifically the Nailed It Ortho OITE review featuring myself and uh, Dr. Woolwine. So uh, welcome, everybody. And uh, Spencer, how's it going, man? I'm pretty good. Uh, excited to get this trauma out of the way and we can move on to uh, all the other areas of ortho here. Yeah, it should be good. You know, I, now I think about it, I think trauma may have been one of my lowest scores <laughs> last year on my OIT. So we'll see if uh, we'll see if it goes up this year or not. Uh, well, let's get started, man. I think we're on some knee stuff. So um, let's just jump yeah. right into it. Uh, what is, uh, Spencer, what's the most common direction and vascular injury for a knee dislocation? Let's start off with the knee. So, yeah, I mean, although fairly rare knee dislocations are the anterior uh, dislocation um, with the, and this was always something that was confusing to me early was how it was defined as an anterior dislocation. And it's the distal segment where it moves. So it's going to be the tibia moving anterior to the distal femur. And you're going to see a popliteal uh, injury as the most common vascular injury. Um, and then most common neurologic injury is going to be the common peroneal nerve. Um, and when we're looking at these patients, um, what are some kind of like the hard signs or the more concerning signs of vascular injury? Yeah. So, you know, if you're evaluating this patient down to ED, if you see, you know, pulsatile bleeding, you know, you, you see squirts of blood coming out pretty much, or you see an expanding hematoma, say you go and you evaluate the patient and you look, you see the, know the hematoma size and you come back in 15 or 20 minutes and it's significantly larger, that'd be something to be on the lookout for. Then also if they have absent pulses, if you're not able to palpate a dorsalis pedis or posterior tibialis pulse, or you're not able to get any pulses on Doppler ultrasound, those are some hard signs of vascular injury. I mean, these, I mean, there's, there's a, some, something going on with the vascular, uh, vascular of the lip. Now, what are some, some of the soft signs of vascular injury? Um, yeah. So, I mean, if they have a hematoma, uh, posteriorly, but it's not an expanding one, uh, also asymmetric pulses, which will lead you down the road of obtaining, uh, ABIs. And so an abnormal ABI would be uh, more of like that soft sign of vascular injury, something that's not immediately obvious until you perform the, uh, the ABI. And so let's say uh, you have a patient come in. I don't know. Let's see. It's a MVC. Uh, 
hit their uh, knee on the uh, or I had like a high axial load um, from a flex knee and and you see that there's just an obvious deformity what's your kind of workup at that at that point yeah so you know obvious deformity first thing you want to do is look and see what you can see just by visual uh, just by by your visual clues so sometimes you can actually see that the knee is grossly dislocated or you may have an x-ray that can uh, aid you into uh into your diagnosis of uh you know of a knee dislocation sometimes if they're in an ed they get those beforehand or sometimes if you're right there and you see the accident or you know if you're on a football field and you see somebody get hit and it's pretty obvious that they have a knee dislocation you go and you assess their pulses and you know that they don't have any pulses or it's very hard to find a pulse next thing you should do uh, automatically is reduce the knee so you want to Go ahead and reduce the knee that sometimes I can just be done with some axial traction and some pressure and you want to reassess the pulses. You know, once you reassess those pulses, uh, you want to obtain an ABI. So exact, for example, just like you just said, our patient that was gone in a car accident and the ED called us and they said, oh, they have a knee dislocation, no pulses on physical exam. First thing you want to do is go and reduce the knee, reassess the pulses and obtain an ABI. And uh, Spencer, really quick, just for those that are listening who may not know what an ABI is or how to obtain it, how do we obtain these ABIs? I know uh, I was once a young uh, medical student or intern. I was like, how do you actually do this? We always talk about it, but nobody really tells you what to do. Uh, Yes, so an ABI ankle brachial uh, index is, uh, um, it's more based on blood pressure. So what you're going to do is you're going to get a the blood pressure of the uh, brachial artery and then a a blood pressure of the ankle and compare the two uh, at which point once you release the pressure from the cuff you have a a doppler on the artery that you're interested in and the the pressure once you release the pressure from the from the cuff um, and it's slowly going down once you start to get the doppler flow back that's the pressure that you're going to mark and you want to compare the ankle pressure to the arm pressure and they essentially should be around 0.9 to 1 is that ratio is going to be uh, normal and anything less than 0.9 is going to be more concerning so if we have this patient and we reduce the knee and they have an ABI of greater than 0.9 and the pulses are present, then they're the ones that uh, we're going to still admit, but then do serial exams on the patient just to make sure that that ABI remains in a normal slash healthy range. Um, But uh, if you reduce that knee and your ABI is less than 0.9, what's your next step? Yeah. So again, if you, you needed a great description of, of what an ABI is and how to obtain it, but say again, you reduce it and you get an ABIs and it's less than 0.9 uh, uh, or, you know, you have diminished pulses, that would be an indication to get an arteriogram where you, uh, where they inject dye and you look into the, and you look and you follow the, uh, you follow the dye along the arteries. And on, what you'll see is you'll see dye, 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 and then either just no dye or it'll kind of spread out. So you'd look for that that stop in that in that die, and that'll clue you in towards there's a vascular injury. Now, and, you know, there's some questions out there that um, that were saying, 
that, that kind of confused uh, some of the people and, and we're saying that if you have um, a knee dislocation and beforehand, you know, that it was, uh, that it was, when it was reduced, that uh, has that it has 30 pulses. So you checked it and it had 30 pulses on physical exam finding. There were some questions that were saying that you would just jump straight to an arteriogram. And then there are some, um, some questions stating that you would get ABIs. And I just want to kind of like point that out because the questions that were saying that you jump straight to the arteriogram were making the point of if you reduce it and it still had 30 pulses, then what's the point of getting an ABI if that's not going to change your treatment and you're going to get an arteriogram? But I still think the way to go about it is to think, you know, pulses, ABI, arteriogram, you know, from less invasive to more invasive. Um, but that being said, if you have a knee dislocation that was reduced and there are absent pulses and there are notable signs of, you know, that hard, hard signs of vascular injury, like a bleeding or expanding hematoma or uh, or, or signs of limb ischemia? Do you need to bring them for an uh, arteriogram or what do you do in that case? So, um, yeah, I mean, if they are having very obvious clinical signs of limb ischemia, uh, then you're really calling in the vascular team for an emergent revascularization, whether that's a, uh, I mean, treatment's obviously going to be directed by them, but that's that can range from a just a direct end-to-end -end repair versus a um, some sort of conduit graft uh, and um, bypass of the injured region. Uh, with us as orthopedic surgeons, obviously being available, just because uh, when they go in for an emergent revascularization, I mean, we're talking about a knee dislocation, which commonly has a multi-ligament uh, injury, and um, we're going to also probably want to be putting a, a knee-spanning external fixator uh, on these uh, patients. So um, this is going to be definitely a, a team-based approach with them doing the emergent revascularization and us stabilizing the knee. Um, I briefly just went over this, but what's uh, what would be the surgical treatment of a knee dislocation yeah just like you were just saying you know if there needs to be a vascular repair it needs to be done it needs to be done and then there are differing studies out there but you know some of the consensus that again if these patients need to be uh, held in an external fixator the the bones need to be stabilized you can use an external fixator uh, and then eventual ligament reconstruction because in order to dislocate the knee you have to tear um, x amount of ligament so you know, this may be eventual cruciate ligament uh, reconstruction. There's a little bit of controversy in when, as far as the timing of these reconstruction, whether it will be acute versus a subacute reconstruction. I think overall, the one of the things to know, and they always ask about, is, is the complications of these knee dislocations and, you know, requiring all these multi-ligamentous knee reconstructions and stiffness is going to be the most common complication. So again, I think the things to know uh, regarding these knee dislocations is kind of the algorithm of, you know, reducing, uh, assessing pulses, obtaining ABIs, and if the ABIs are less than, you know, 0.9 that we're talking about getting an arteriogram, if they're greater than 0.9, admitting, observing, serial exams. And then if there are, is a knee dislocation with hard signs of vascular injury, uh, present that you may not actually need a CT and you want to go for emergent revascularization, ideally within eight hours. Now, uh, just kind of moving forth, and I mean, we're still talking about the knee a little bit. 
uh, let's kind of switch transitions into the patella. Uh, so what patella fractures, because, you know, you may get a call from an ED saying, oh, we have this, you know, 28 year old uh, lady who was walking, slipped and fell directly onto her knee. And she has this patella fracture. And you're telling your junior resident to go down and take a look at it. And so what are some, you know, some patella fractures that are going to be amenable to non-operative management or non-operative treatment? Um, yeah, so I, the non-displaced are very minimally displaced, kind of less than two millimeter uh, uh, gap that you see uh, on radiographs with an intact extensor mechanism. I think that's the, uh, the key point here is just because of all of the uh, soft tissue structures around the patella um, with just kind of that extensor retinaculum, um, you can be fooled even with non-displaced fractures that they do not have an intact extensor mechanism. So you're still uh, assessing that patient and uh, doing an intra-articular injection of lidocaine if necessary so that they have a little bit of better pain control and having them do a straight leg raise. And if they are able to do that, then you can uh, consider like a, a hinge knee brace locked in extension or a knee immobilizer, or if they are very unreliable, you can lock them up in a cast, a long leg cast, <laughs> um, which I've done a few times. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's really that intact extensor mechanism is the, uh, the key point. Um, and uh, because of that, um, I mean, we're talking about the patella. Why would, why would we try and do everything to preserve the patella uh, at all points in, in patients with a patella fracture rather than just excising it or, or doing some sort of tissue advancement? Yeah, you know, it's an important, uh, it's important part of that extensor mechanism, right? So you have your quadriceps tendon, which goes and attaches on the superior pole of your patella. Then you have your patella, then your patella tendon, which goes and attaches on a tibial tubercle. So that patella serves as a lever arm for the quadriceps function in order to extend your knees. So that's why you try to preserve the patella um, if, you know, at, at all times in patients with these patella fractures instead of just taking it out. Now, what are some treatment options for if, you know, the we have patients that have displaced patella fracture with their uh, extensor mechanism is not intact. What are some of the treatment options for open reducing and internal fixating these patella fractures? Um, the kind of the old school way, but still very widely used is the uh, K-wire with tension band uh, versus uh, cannulated screws with a tension band. Um, but there's also new plates coming out uh, that are either um, kind of non-specific, like mesh plates versus, I think, uh, not to kind of advertise for any specific company because I have zero ties to any of them, but uh, one that I do know of is Synthes has a new uh, kind of patella-specific low-profile plate. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, any sort of mini frag uh, plates that you can use in conjunction with either cannulated screws or anything else can be used. It's kind of a, a grab bag of uh, depending on the fracture characteristics, but the classic uh, fixation technique for patellas that they like to test on is that uh, tension band 
uh, aspect of it where you rely on the tensile forces of the far cortex to uh, be converted into compressive forces on the near cortex or the more kind of articular side uh, to create that compression and uh, fixation in that uh, uh, pattern. So um, let's, let's say that you have a uh, displaced inferior pole uh, patella fracture. Um, is that something you're going to lead more towards ORAF versus partial pedalectomy with uh, tissue advancement? Yeah. So I've read a couple different things on these. Uh, I, I, th I feel like the test answer would most likely be open reduction internal fixation when possible, just like we were speaking about a little bit earlier that you want to save the patella in any case that you can, you always want to try to rely on that bone to bone healing. So in places where you can uh, save the patella and open reduce it and internally fixate it. And so there are studies that show that this is associated with better outcomes, but then there are also other conflicting studies that show that there is no difference in outcomes. I know there was a study in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma published in 2015, which is kind of a retrospective analysis uh, that looked at functional outcomes after surgically treated uh, patella fractures comparing ORIF with partial patellectomy. And they noted that both ORIF and uh, partial patellectomy demonstrated similar final range of motion, functional scores, and complication rates. But I think overall, again, if you can save that piece, try to save it, but just know there are some uh, conflicting studies out there but mm -hmm. if yeah go ahead no oh, you know i'm just uh, i'm agreeing with you <laughs> yeah yeah and so if we are you know undergoing and doing this partial patellectomy um we're on the patella should the patellar tendon be reattached uh you want to try and do it in as anatomic position as possible so that would be a little bit more anteriorly compared to the uh, articular surface. And the reason for that is you want to prevent uh, patellar tilt as that uh, patella is being pulled in its kind of separate directions by the tibial tubercle and the quads. Um, you don't want that patella to abnormally tilt and cause uh, increased joint forces to lead to um, early degenerative change. Yeah. Um, and then let's say we're uh, fixing... Uh, patellas, what's the kind of most common uh, complication or patient complaint after open reduction and fixation of uh, these fractures? Yeah. So, if, I mean, if you think about it, you feel your own patella, you feel how subcutaneous that is. And I know we're talking about, you know, different uh, advancing technologies and these low profile plates, et cetera, et cetera. And I think all that is to help prevent against symptomatic hardware, which is the most common complication, especially if you use K wires and you can just feel, again, feel your own patella, patella and imagine screws on top of it or K wires coming through the you know, superior pole and how uh, bothersome that can be. So I think it's always good to counsel all the patients that are going uh, undergoing open reduction and tone fixation of their patella and let them know that, you know, symptomatic hardware is a common complication that many times can require reoperation rates. That way, afterwards, they are not surprised when that hardware is bothering them. And you can say that, yes, I did tell you about this. And, and so they are uh, <laughs> not surprised and get mad and upset with you. Uh, you know, it's kind of all just a part of the, the doctoring, um, the doctoring, uh, I guess, uh, techniques or skills that you pick up with time. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. And, and moving forward. So I think we've touched on some of the things with the patella. So let us, let us transition into a little bit lower part of the leg, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the, some tibial plateau fractures. So what are the anatomical differences between the, the medial and lateral tibial plateau? I remember this was a good question. I always got asked when I was a rotating med student. And so oh, yeah. what are some of the, uh, those differences? Yeah. And so I had a hard time not a kind of visualizing this outside of uh, what really helped me is was looking at actual uh, MRIs of the knee. Uh, but uh, kind of as we go through the knee, the, I initially thought that they both were uh, just concave discs and that the knee just moved in as a straight hinge, but that's really not true. Um, the medial plateau is one that's more larger and more concave, uh, whereas the uh, lateral tibial plateau is more convex and uh, is responsible for some of the kind of rotational movement of the knee, uh, where the kind of rotational moment is around that medial uh, tibial plateau. And uh Oh, man, I see the that. joints coming out in you. I know you're on joints right now. Think about these medial pivot exactly. knees. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, I mean, it, we'll, we'll cover this, I think, more probably in, in arthroplasty where yeah. with the femoral rollback and, and how the tibia moves with flexion and extension. But, uh, yeah, so the key to remember is medial tibial plateau is, has a larger surface area and is more concave. The lateral tibial plateau is a smaller surface area more convex and the medial femoral uh condyle is uh wait did i say it wrong i think medial tibial condyle is stronger than the lateral tibial condyle so the lateral plateau fractures are more common yeah yeah for and sure then, uh what is the uh kind of force mechanisms that lead to the different um tibial plateau fractures Yes. I mean, if you just think about it and you think where those where those condyles and plateaus are impacting, that's kind of where what can cause that sided uh, injury. So, for example, if you have a lateral tibial plateau fracture, it is a, typically a, a valgus, uh, a valgus load and axial compression that causes kind of that compression or, or split or a split depression of that lateral side versus the opposite. If you have a medial tibial plateau fracture, that's going to be, again, an axial load and a varus force. Now, one of the things that I, I'm reading on this and, and kind of learning a little bit more about tibial plateau fractures, and, and we're going to we're getting into classifications in a bit and different ways to classify it, but um, in the AO books and the AO trauma books, they kind of have this column theory where they talk about the medial column, lateral column, and a posterior column. And, you know, so the, the injury uh, mechanisms for the medial and lateral column are pretty much what we just said, the medial column is going to be a varus force, lateral column is going to be a valgus force. When you have injuries to the posterior column, that's going to be kind of a varus force and flexion of the knee. So the other ones are where your, your knee is kind of an extension, but this one is varus and flexion of the knee, and you can have um, ACL avulsions with these posterior column uh, tibial plateau fractures, as well as some lateral meniscus injuries. Uh, but since we're, since we're talking a little bit about classifications of these uh, tibial plateau fractures, another great question that will get asked to a lot of medical students as well as junior residents is the Saster classification. So can you kind of go over what this Saster classification is for our tibial plateau fractures? 
Yeah, it's the kind of most common uh, or commonly brought up and talked about uh, fracture classification for tibial plateau fractures. And uh, there's uh, one through six. And um, I have heard of several different ways to remember this. I remember it more in the context of a relationship. And what I mean by that is, uh, so uh, Schatzker one is just a split in the lateral uh, proximal tibia, uh, whereas two is a split depression. Three is just a depression uh, fracture of the lateral uh, proximal tibia. Four is a, now we're on the medial side, it's a medial split. Uh, five is a bicondylar, but you do have an intact metaphysis. And then a six is a metaphyseal uh, dissociation along with a fracture line that extends into the uh, tibial plateau. And, and kind of going back to how I remember it in a relationship manner is, um, so uh, let's say you're in a relationship and you initially, you break up, so you split. So that's one. And then once that split happens, you're split from that person and you get a little bit depressed. And then as time moves on, then you're just depressed. The, the breakup has already happened. Now you're just depressed. Uh, uh, stage four is you kind of go back out into the relationship world and you go over to the other side. And so you, now, you're on the, now you're on the medial side. And then uh, five is uh, you realize that the, the medial side isn't quite as good as the lateral side. Uh, and so you're kind of split between the two. So now you have a bicondylar. And then uh, six is you realize that the relationship is just over and you're better off single. And that's just a metaphyseal <laughs> dissociation. I've so, never heard that, but I, I love that. <laughs> never so heard that's, it, but I like yeah, it. That's how, that's how I initially just started remembering it. I can't remember who told me. I think it was one of the residents when I was uh, at my home program as a as a rotator. But it just kind of has stuck with me the over the last six years. So it's a great one. It's a nice little story. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's, that's going to stick for a lot of people. That's great. I like that. <laughs> um, but uh, kind of moving on. So the uh, downside, unfortunately, to a lot of classification systems is they can and can't kind of dictate. Uh, treatment or can and can't give you kind of associated injuries, but what are some of the uh, associated injuries, which with each of these classifications? Yeah. And I think if you just think about it, sometimes they make sense, right? So if you have a type two, where you have a split and depression uh, of that lateral plateau, you can have lateral meniscus tears, which makes sense. If the articular surface is depressed, the uh, meniscus sits right on the articular surface. So you can have a lateral meniscus tear, right? Uh, if you have a type four or a medial uh, medial uh, split of your tibial plateau, you can have a medial meniscus tear. And another thing to think about is just as we were talking about a little bit earlier is that our, our medial side of our knee, our medial femoral condyle and our medial uh, tibial plateau it's kind of going to be stronger portions of the knee. So it takes more force uh, or you have a higher you know, type of mechanism of injury when you injure that side of the knee. So this is going to be associated with knee dislocations and vascular injuries. So anytime you look, anytime you see these medial sided um, 
uh, medial sided fracture, you have to have a high suspicion for vascular injuries, a uh, high suspicion for a knee dislocation. And then anytime you have these, these higher mechanism uh, injuries, you know, these disaster fours, uh, fives and six, uh, you want to be on the lookout for things such as compartment syndrome. You know, you want to take a look at their soft tissue in, uh, injuries. Uh, of course, with ligamentous injuries as well that we spoke about a little bit earlier when you have those posterior column uh, frac fractures, you can have, you know, ACL avulsion injuries and, and, and other injuries of that sort, meniscus injuries. So again, higher mechanism, you know, you want to be able to look out for compartment syndrome, ligamentous injuries. When you have a medial sided uh, tibial plateau fracture, you want to be able to look out for medial meniscus tears as well as knee dislocation and vascular injury. When you have a lateral sided uh, or type two, um, Shaster type two, where you have a lateral uh, split depression, you want to be on the lookout for lateral meniscus tears. Now, which of these, you know, six classifications for Shaster is the most common? Uh, that is going to be type two. And as you kind of graduate through years of residency, you'll realize that kind of more and more, um, just with every tibial plateau fracture, you see almost every single one of them is going to be a split depressed uh, plateau and the treatment for that is going to be uh, open book kind of backdoor filling of the uh, metaphyseal defect and then uh, uh, plate and so so that's the uh, that's the nice part is they are all kind of follow this uh, algorithm for treatments but um, the uh, Schatzker classification is really only one classification. I mean, there's the whole and more classification, which uh, talks a little bit more about kind of a knee dislocation sort of injuries, uh, not very commonly used, but uh, one that is, I think, important to know and uh, can help at least for research purposes and to kind of convey uh, your findings to another orthopedic surgeon is the AO classification. And so what is the AO classification for these proximal tibia uh, plateau fractures? Yeah. And this is something that I always forgot or had trouble remembering, but if you just think about it, you know, that, that first letter in that AO classification has to deal with the long bones, right? So if you go from, you know, uh, uh, proximal to distal, the, the tibia is going to be number four. Uh, so the first letter is going to be four for the tibia. And then after that is one, two, and three for proximal, mid-chapter, distal. We're talking about tibia plateaus, so it's going to be one. So it's going to be 41. Again, four is going to be the tibia. One is going to be proximal. And after that, it's divided into A, B, and C. Uh, and then that's going to be non-articular or extra-articular, uh, partial articular, and then a complete articular injury. So 41A is going to be a proximal tibia uh, tibial plateau fracture that is extra articular. Uh, 41B is going to be your partial articulars or just kind of your split. So these could be your, if you want to compare it, it'll be kind of like a Shaster, uh, a four Shaster one, where you just have a split or partial articular injury. And then 41C is going to be your complete articular injury. Now uh, in patients, I remember I had a, a, at, at first it took me a little while to 
learn how to evaluate these x-rays with it that they show you or patients just have a, a medial uh, tibial plateau fracture dislocation sometimes it can be a little hard to see on imaging so what do you what are some things that you want to be able to look for look out for on on x-rays in patients with a medial tibial plateau fracture dislocation um yeah so i mean everything's going to uh, kind of head over that kind of medial tibial plateau. So you should see an intact lateral column. Uh, you may see some central lateral articular impaction and uh, possibly some shortening with some condylar uh, width uh, that is not anatomic. Uh, and you can really compare that to a contralateral uh, knee x-ray, which is something that I try and get uh, in my own practice and to get the other residents in my program, the younger residents in my program to do is it's really not a, a horrible thing. If you're, if an x-ray looks confusing or you're kind of unsure of what's going on, uh, getting an x-ray of the contralateral limb, one helps with surgical planning, but can also just kind of help you see what's going on with these sort of fractures and especially ones like these midi medial tibial plateaus that are fairly rare, but can be devastating to patients if they're not treated appropriately or caught in an appropriate manner. So uh, again, looking at an intact lateral column, uh, central lateral articular impaction, and then some uh, shortening plus condylar uh, widening are the key things you're going to be looking out for. And then uh, although we know that uh in all of fracture surgery, not everything is completely operative, but uh, a lot of these tibial plateau fractures are. Uh, what are your uh, operative indications for these? Yeah, so, you know, anybody with a displaced articular fracture should get fixed. You know, uh, that's kind of back to AO basic principles, uh, you know, absolute stability. You know, you want to be able to preserve joint motion uh, as well as mobility. So anybody that has a displaced articular fracture, uh, there are patients that have fracture dislocations like you were just mentioning because you know that's an unstable knee. Uh, any medial tibial plateau fractures should all be fixed uh, by condylar fractures. And then any patients that have articular uh, uh, fractured or depression that, that causes knee instability. These are all indications of fixed tibial plateau fractures as, as well as, you know, some open tibia plateau fractures uh, is, you know, kind of another uh, indication to treat these. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You've just finished another one of our OITE review series. Now, if you have not already, go and click the link in the description to be put on the list to get updated as far as our uh, podcast companion book. We are working on a companion book for this, but as you can imagine, uh, I am also in residency, so it is taking a little, a little while, but... Nonetheless, go ahead and click and subscribe and put your email in there and we will keep you updated until next week. Mm -hmm.